Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good morning. This is Jay Levine, your host of Antitrust Law Source. And we're going to be discussing today the Supreme Court's recent ruling in Tyson Foods. Just to set this up, I'm going to explain the facts fairly briefly because they're important to understand the holding. But if you want to know a little bit more about the facts, uh, we have a blog article on this case at antitrustlawsource.com. So Tyson has a uh, pork processing plant in Iowa. And workers in the kill, cut, and retrim departments there, because they're engaged in fairly dangerous activities, they have to wear protective gear. And depending on the department one is working in, that protective gear is different. Now, it takes time to put on and take off that protective gear. And it had already been established um, years earlier that um, the time it takes to don and doff that protective gear is compensable. Um, and is work that must be compensated for. Now, uh, under the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, Tyson was required to record the worker's time, but failed to do so in this case. Now, the FLSA also provides that any work above 40 hours has to be compensated essentially at time and a half. So you can start to see already the issue. Uh, If you add on the time it takes to put on and take off the uh, protective gear, does that kick a worker up over the 40 hours? And if the worker was already up over the 40 hours, was that worker being paid uh, time and a half for it? And the the plaintiffs had essentially said that uh, Tyson um, was not fully compensating them for um, for that donning and doffing time, and therefore was undercompensating them um, and not uh, compensating them for the time and a half um, above forty hours. So that was th- those were the facts of the case. Now, because Tyson did not record the workers' hours, the workers had a dilemma: how do they prove whether they um, whether they worked 40 hours, how do they prove how long it took them to put on and take off that protective gear, and whether that kicked them up over 40 hours, and if so, by how much. So they had an expert uh, um, videotape a number of different employees throughout the day and in different departments. Um, I think there were 744 um Uh, separate videotape sessions and observations. And what that um, expert did is for each department essentially averaged the time that he observed people uh, taking off and putting on, um, or I should say putting on and taking off, the protective gear. Now, when you went a little bit more granular, it was clear that the individual times for putting on and uh, taking off the protective gear varied fairly widely as much as by 10 minutes. But nevertheless, the expert had averaged all those times, and that's what they wanted to uh, present, and that won them class certification, and that's what they presented at trial. And essentially, what another expert did is he took those average times and added it to um, uh pretty much the the punch-in, punch-out times of each individual worker to determine whether they were over 40 hours and, if so, by how much, because, as I said, Tyson hadn't uh, recorded the donning and doffing time 
Well, they went through trial and the plaintiffs won a judgment of $6.7 million. Now, Tyson moved to have that verdict set aside on two reasons. One, first, the Tyson said that the class certification should never have come about. The class should never have been certified because the wide varieties in individual times that it took to put on and take off that protective equipment um, uh, was so individualistic that it defeated the predominance required of the rules of civil procedure. Again, predominance says that the questions of law or fact have to predominate over um, individual questions of law or fact. And generally, whether someone is injured um, is the uh, bellwether um, issue as to whether predominance can be satisfied. And here Tyson said, look, these varying times show that whether... Uh, a a worker actually um, met its 40-hour statutory requirement to get the time and a half or not uh, are so individualistic because these times vary so much that you can't just presume it by averaging um, a bunch of videotaped observations and that um, such representative evidence is not good enough to satisfy the predominance requirement for class certification. The uh, Tyson also argued that because the jury came back with a much lower um, damages figure than that the damage put f- uh, that the plaintiffs put forward, it was obvious that the jury did not accept um, something about the plaintiff's experts' estimates, whether it was the estimate of times or who it applied to, and therefore um, it is quite possible that if you Uh, compensate the entire class, you would be compensating people for whom the jury felt were not actually injured. And that would violate um, whole sorts of issues, including due process on behalf of Tyson's. Uh, The district court judge denied both, um, and so did the appellate court, and it went up uh, before the Supreme Court on those two issues. And, And essentially, the Supreme Court said, listen, whether this representative evidence was good or bad is a common issue to everyone. Okay. But then it reasoned that if this kind of representative evidence could be used in an individual action, it should be able to be used in a class action. Well, that kind of begs the question because the issue is whether such representative evidence could even be used in an individual action. And to that, they cite an earlier Supreme Court case back in 1946 that essentially held um, in somewhat similar evidence, somewhat similar, similar representative evidence, that that can fill in evidentiary gaps. And here I'm going to quote the prior case. When employers violate their statutory duty to keep proper records. So you can already see that the failure of Tyson's to uh, record the donning and doffing time um, was a critical component in the court's ultimate acceptance of this representative um, evidence. And in the holding, you know, if you want to summarize the holding of the court, it basically said, whether a representative sample may be used to establish class-wide liability will depend on the purpose for which the sample is being introduced and on the underlying cause of action. Now, I just want to pause there because that's fairly vague, and one of the issues will be exactly what does that mean. But essentially, in this instance, um, it certainly meant that and it, it is a you know sublime, if not uh, maybe more explicit theme in the opinion that Tyson didn't keep the records it should have kept. So what were the plaintiffs to do? How could they prove their case? 
essentially, if you follow Tyson's logic, the plaintiff shouldn't be able to have any case, but that essentially makes them profit from their own sins, if you will. Uh, so it was clear that the Supreme Court was bothered by that and said that in such cases, uh, they're going to allow representative evidence when there's at least some evidence to suggest that the representative evidence is um, representative of of the people. Now, the dissent points out that there's no evidence um, that the representative evidence actually represented anything. It was just an average, um, you know, uh, if you um, if you have things that are at one and things that are at ten, and you average them together, it's five point five. But five point five is neither one nor ten. So, um, and and the dissent, you know, focused a lot on that. But nevertheless, the Supreme Court felt that um, the representative evidence was not so far off as to be um, um, patently unfair, and allowed it um, to be used to certify the class. Now, obviously, the the plaintiffs bar are happy because uh, defendants and a lot of the amici were trying to uh, get a bright line rule that representative evidence, um, you know, is just patently um, forbidden to be used or relied upon um, for certifying a class. And that the Supreme Court said they're they're absolutely not going to do. There's no bright line test. So we know that representative evidence can be used in certain circumstances. So in that respect, the class action plaintiff's bar uh, has a victory. To the extent that it's limited only to places where it is the defendant's fault um, as to why the plaintiffs don't have the type of evidence they need to prove their case, well, that makes the holding fairly limited. The $64,000 question becomes um, whether the holding in Tyson's allowing plaintiffs to use representative evidence uh, is limited to situations where uh, they are unable to otherwise uh, prove their case Um, for certification because of some malfeasance or misfeasance on the part of the defendants? Or does it get extended to situations where the data doesn't exist or it's just very hard to obtain um, and they can overcome their um, or fulfill their predominance requirement under Rule 23 using representative evidence? Obviously, the latter situation is what class action defense lawyers fear, um, but we'll have to see how the uh, holding is extended. Um, you know, generally, uh, with the passing of Justice Scalia, uh, you know, the class action defense bar wants to see how the Supreme Court's going to go. You know, soon after his passing, uh, Dow uh, settled uh, a class action case it had um, um, that was going that it was seeking review for, um, and it settled for several hundred million dollars. Um, and uh, recently, the Supreme Court denied cert in two cases that would have addressed similar issues in Tyson. So we shall see whether the Supreme Court um, starts tilting more plaintiff-friendly or not, but it is something to be aware of. And this is something for both in-house counsel and executives to be conscious of, especially those who could be subject to um, consumer class actions. Um, Often in antitrust and other consumer um, class actions, the type of evidence presented to prove the predominance is representative at some level. And the question is, um, is that okay? It's certainly there's no uh, rule against it now, but, but, um, you know, uh, does that still mean it's appropriate? And how off must that representative evidence be from kind of the individual um, 
the individual time, how much variance must there be for it, for the representative evidence to be inappropriate for use in predominance? All those are questions that are just going to have to be dealt with in the future. But the fact that representative evidence can be used to support classification um, is significant, especially when you look at the import and the consequence of a class being certified. I mean, you go from having some name plaintiffs having a few hundreds or a few thousand dollars in damages and maybe even a few hundred thousand dollars in damages to a class having millions and millions and it oftentimes billions of dollars in damages depending on the type of damages you're talking about and depending on how big of a class you're talking about. So the it often is a, an absolute... Um, breaking point as whether the uh, case gets certified. Because often if it's not certified, many times the plaintiffs take their ball and go home. And often if it is certified, uh, it really does bring defendants to the um, to the uh, bargaining table. Not always, but um, often enough that it is in a major, major uh, turning point in a litigation. So stay tuned. Um, we will, of course, keep you up to date. Uh, this has been Jay Levine, your host of Antitrust Law Source. You can get me at um, my email is jlevine, the letter J, L-E-V-I-N-E, at porterwright.com. Um, I'm also found in LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, at J-A-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E. Uh, please visit our blog, uh, antitrustlawsource.com. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me today, and I look forward uh, to bringing you more and future informative podcasts. Have a great day. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.